Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Welcome back, Cardio Nerds. It's Amit and Dan. Thanks for joining us as we tour fellowship programs across the country. As part of the Cardio Nerds Case Report series, produced in collaboration with the American College of Cardiology Fellows and Training section, each episode will feature a cardiology fellowship program. Fellows from that program will present and teach about a fascinating case and share what makes their hearts flutter about their program. Each case discussion is followed by an eCPR segment from a content expert and a message from their program director. Before we dive in, just remember, we are an independent educational platform. This podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. The case you're about to hear is 100% HIPAA compliant. We thank you for subscribing to and supporting the Cardio Nerds. Our mission is simple, to democratize cardiovascular education, promote diversity and inclusion, empower everyone to learn and teach from the basics to the advanced while fostering wellness and humanity. If you believe in the mission, consider supporting us on patreon.com forward slash cardio nerds. Every little bit goes a long way. And now, without further ado, let's continue on our tour with another fascinating case from amazing Cardio Nerds colleagues. Hey, Cardio Nerds, welcome back to this very special episode. Super special. Today is the 45th episode in the CNCR Recruitment Edition series. We are ending the series with a bang. Very excited and totally honored to be joined by fellows from the OHSU Cardiology Fellowship Training Program. With us today, we have Drs. Stacy Howell, Miranda Merrill, Timothy Simpson, and Chris Kumar. Guys, welcome to the show. Really excited to dive into today's case. But before we do, would you mind introducing yourselves? Yeah, absolutely. I'm Miranda Merrill. I'm a second-year cardiology fellow here at OHSU, and I'm interested in EP. I'm planning on applying to EP fellowship at the end of my general fellowship. I'm Stacy Howell. I'm a third-year cardiology fellow and one of the chief fellows this year at OHSU. I'm currently applying for EP fellowships, and I plan for a career in academic cardiology. Thanks for having us. Hey, guys. I'm Tim Simpson, another second-year general fellow here at OHSU. I plan on specializing in interventional cardiology with a focus on complex coronaries and MCS and the interplay of interventional and critical care cardiology. I'm excited to be here today. Hi, guys. My name is Chris Kumar. I'm one of the second-year general cardiology fellows. I'm planning on applying to interventional cardiology. I have an interest in structural heart disease. Outside of the hospital here in Portland, Oregon, I love spending time outdoors and exploring all of our wonderful food carts. Miranda, Tim, Chris, Stacy, this is super exciting. I have definitely not been to Oregon. Take us to Portland. Show us around Give us a flavor of what's going on there and take us to your favorite chill spot so we could talk about some seriously fascinating cardiology. All right. So there are so many great places in Portland to choose from, but if we had to choose just one, we're sitting on the Portland waterfront in the park and you can imagine that there's people running by, there's people out on the riverfront, they're kayaking, stand up paddleboarding. Tim is bringing us some Breakside Hazy IPA and Stacy's providing some Willamette Valley Pinot Noir and Chris is of course bringing us some food from his favorite food cart. Guys, I love that. And I have to say that when I interviewed for fellowships, visiting OHSU was one of my absolutely most memorable visits because 
you know, OHSU is situated atop the, you know, sort of a high point in Portland and a backdrop of just incredible nature, as well as a metropolis. You take a gondola ride to get up to the campus. And I actually, just because of how the flights worked out, I enjoyed spending, I think, two or three nights in Portland. So I, you know, I had the interview, but then I was able to just enjoy the city. And one of my favorite parts of the city was this like, it's huge. It was almost like, I think two blocks just lined with food trucks. And I have no idea how many there were, but you could literally get whatever cuisine that came to your imagination. So it was one of my favorite parts of the trip. So I think I visited that area probably like three or four times before I left. I'm very happy to visit the waterfront. It was absolutely gorgeous, but only with the caveat that I want to go back to the food trucks afterwards. Yeah. And I love this whole potluck style, like that everybody's bringing something. (laughs) This is like really great. It's probably a good foreshadowing. Let's dive in here into some awesome cardiology here at the waterfront in anticipation of adding some incredible food uh, to the mix. What do we have for us, guys? So the patient is a 25-year-old, previously healthy male who was a member of the U.S. Coast Guard. The morning of the presentation, he was in his usual state of good health and went to work. Later, his coworkers noticed that he was silent and found him slumped over at his desk. He was unresponsive and pulseless. His coworkers, who are BLS trained, initiated bystander CPR. An AED was placed and identified a shockable rhythm, which was later confirmed to be ventricular fibrillation. He received two shocks and at least two rounds of CPR. On arrival of the EMS, he was in a normal sinus rhythm and minimally responsive. He was then later intubated for airway protection in the field and was initially taken to the nearest emergency room in the town of Coos Bay, a rural town on the Oregon coast. The electrocardiogram at this time showed normal sinus rhythm without any ischemic ST changes. He was then transferred via life flight to OHSU for ongoing management. He has no prior medical or surgical history. He's taking no medications and has no allergies. There's no family history of sudden cardiac death, syncope, or cardiovascular disease. He infrequently drinks alcohol and does not smoke or use drugs. As you hear the chopper roll in from your call room, what would your initial framework and differential diagnosis for this patient's presentation be? Yeah, it's a great question, Chris. I'm definitely wondering why a young, healthy guy would suffer a sudden cardiac arrest. When I think of sudden cardiac death or when it survived sudden cardiac arrest, I think it's a helpful topic for learners because in the acute setting, it's nice to build a framework. And I think it lends itself nicely to that. A good starting branch point is discerning the presenting rhythm. So first deciding was this a PEA or asystolic arrest versus a VTAC or VFib. When we think about the PEA asystole side of things, we have our five H's and five T's, hypoxemia, hypothermia, hypo or hyperkalemia, acidosis, hypovolemia, thrombosis, either MI or PE, tamponade, tension pneumothorax, and toxins. On the flip side of that, when we think about VT or VF, the first decision point for me in my own framework is this acute ischemia or not. And so we identify as their ST elevations on the ECG, knowing that uh, ischemic etiology, it's critical for have immediate revascularization. Obviously, ischemic insults are less common in the younger population, but we can't forget things like coronary anomalies or SCAD may also lead to ischemia and arrests in this age group. Once we've ruled out ischemia, then I think, does this patient have a predisposition or a history for structural heart disease? Things like hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, 
ARVC or dilated cardiomyopathies, or could they have an infiltrative process like sarcoidosis or hemochromatosis? Then when we think about someone with a structurally normal heart, could this be an arrhythmic syndrome, something like a long or short QT, Brugada, WPW, or CPVT? So I would say based on the history that we have so far, we have a young patient with a VF arrest without any ischemic changes. My concern for a structural heart disease process is lower, and so I'm considering could this be a primary arrhythmic process? But overall, the differential remains broad. Tim, that was fantastic. And, you know, when the chopper is coming in and things are, you know, and your patient is coming towards you, you know, a lot of times you have to have thought out these processes beforehand. And this is exactly what you're, uh, you're demonstrating is that you have this kind of algorithm and thought process of how you approach this patient. You know, when the young patient presents with an arrest, that is super worrisome. A, it's worrisome in that we now need to figure out what's going on for this patient. You know, older people that arrest, there are so many common things that are common, but usually when younger people arrest, it becomes more of a zebra hunt. And the other thing about this is these are patients that before their arrest, they may actually never present with anything. And these are the patients that we fear missing subtle clues on, let's say, baseline ECGs that may point us to a substrate that could lead to an arrest, say, prolonged QTC syndrome or hypertrophic cardiomyopathy evidenced on an ECG or an epsilon wave, which is maybe indicative of ARVC. So these are sometimes patients that even before they arrest create a lot of anxiety in the what am I missing kind of fear that people have when taking care of regular healthy patients. But the way you frame this is very nice. Coronary occlusion is totally possible from an atherosclerotic lesion, but in this patient, it's so unlikely. So you're thinking about other things. And so the way you approach this patient is, is just absolutely fantastic. You know, is there a structural problem going on? Is there a genetic component such as a channelopathy going on or a prolonged QTC or a Brugada syndrome that I need to think about? Are there drugs in this patient system that's creating a situation that's a setup for arrhythmia? Or is there an acquired condition that had happened, say, maybe a coronary embolus or a spontaneous coronary artery dissection. You know, those are the things that you're thinking of when you approach this patient. And I'm sure as we kind of go through the case, we're going to be collecting data that's going to really help us slice and dice down this differential diagnosis to really find that bucket that we should go after for this particular patient. So kudos to you thinking about all this when you hear that chopper. Tim, Dan, thanks for walking us through how you approach cardiac arrest. I came into this conversation looking forward to food trucks, but I have to say I am so sobered by the situation here. And so just to contextualize where we are, we're talking about a 25-year-old previously healthy man who for a living serves his community as a Coast Guard. This is a very high-stakes situation. It's a situation where this patient essentially died and thankfully was revived. And so I want to take this moment to one, just reflect on the fact that he was revived not by physicians or nurses or EMS, but he was revived by bystanders and coworkers who were BLS trained. So an amazing testament to public health and training and awareness campaigns. But the second thing is, while we figure out what the differential diagnosis is, while we manage his acute presentation, I am most concerned about what we do for him afterwards, right? I mean, the biggest risk factor for an MI is a prior MI. The biggest risk factor for peripartum cardiomyopathy is prior peripartum cardiomyopathy. The biggest risk factor for cardiac arrest is going to be a prior cardiac arrest. 
And so whatever we do this admission, I think is going to be very important to make sure he, you know, he survives this acute presentation. But I'm looking ahead to think about how do we risk stratify him and make sure that this doesn't happen to him again. Uh, so forget the food trucks. You've got my attention. What happens next? With that differential and that framework in mind, let's go ahead and examine our patient. On examination, his temperature was 34 degrees Celsius, currently on a cooling protocol. His heart rate was 65 beats per minute. His blood pressure was 113 over 85, and his respirations were 11 per minute. He was satting at 100% while mechanically intubated. In general, he was falling commands, although he was intubated. His lungs were clear with mechanical breath sounds without any crackles. His heart was regular rate and rhythm. He had no murmurs. His abdomen was soft and non-tender, and his lower extremities were warm without any significant edema. Neurologically, he was awake and had no focal neurological deficits. So, um, you know, in your physical exam, it sounds like he was being cooled because he had an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, and it sounds like he was somnolent on the scene, and he was intubated and sedated. So when he arrived to us, you know, he was his neurologic status was in question, um, and so we initiated a targeted temperature management protocol, and so he was cooled. Uh, it became apparent pretty quickly that he was, you know, there was some vent dyssynchrony and there were some signs that he was waking up, even though we were attempting to try and keep him sedated. At that point in time, figuring out his neurologic status is really important. And especially since, you know, Dan had mentioned earlier, his out of hospital resuscitation had been so effective and he'd had quick bystander CPR. So we woke him up, actually, we weaned off his propofol and he woke up and he was neurologically intact. And I think that's a good teaching point to make. Great. Thanks so much, Miranda. Let's move on to his labs. His CMP was notable for normal serum electrolytes. He had a white count of 13.4, his hemoglobin was 11.5, and his platelets were 152. His troponin I assay was 2.82, with an upper limit of normal less than 0.8 nanograms per milliliter. His nt ProBNP was 17, his lactic acid was 1.7, his thyroid-stimulating hormone was 2, and his urine toxicology screen was negative. Miranda, will you help take us through the EKG? Sure, Chris. Um, So uh, looking at his ECG here, you know, he's in normal sinus rhythm. His heart rate's in the 60s. He's got borderline long QTC. His uh, QTC interval is 460 milliseconds, and he's got a first-degree AV block. His PR interval is uh, 215 milliseconds. He's got a borderline right-axis deviation. And I think maybe most importantly to note, he doesn't have any ST segment elevations or depressions or T-wave inversions. Um, Our EP attendings here kind of coach us to go beyond just interpreting the ECG and really dive into looking for clues of what potentially precipitated this person's cardiac arrest. So looking for signs of arrhythmia. In addition to just interpreting the ECG, things I'm looking for on this 12 lead is signs of a delta wave. So an upslurring QRS to suggest Wolf-Parkinson-White syndrome. And in the setting of atrial fibrillation, Wolf-Parkinson-White could precipitate VF. I'm also looking for uh, coved ST segments or maybe saddleback ST segments in V1 and V2 that might be suggestive of a Brugada syndrome, a Brugada pattern. Um, Looking for LVH, so if his ECG meets LVH criteria, you might be suspicious for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. I'm also looking for epsilon waves or maybe T-wave inversions in V1 or V2 that, again, as someone had mentioned earlier, would be indicative of ARVC. I'm looking for the QTC. Is it prolonged? Does it suggest that he has got some sort of medications on board that maybe are prolonging his QTC or maybe he has an inherited prolonged QTC? 
Um, and then also looking at, you know, are there Q waves that fit a coronary distribution that might suggest that he'd had infarct in the past, although it's unlikely in this young patient. Lastly, I think about PVCs. If you're seeing frequent PVCs, maybe he had an R on T, PVC-induced ventricular fibrillation. So these are all things that I'm also thinking about in the back of my head and looking for to make sure I don't see them because that could kind of be a clue to a diagnosis here. Miranda, you know, you just modeled for us next level clinical detective work. You're not just looking at the EKG and going, okay, rate, rhythm, axis, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, you're doing all that. You're being systematic. But what you're showing us is to think about the clinical syndrome and then approach every additional diagnostic information in a way that's hypothesis generated, right? And hypothesis driven. You're thinking this patient is a patient that came in with a shockable cardiac arrest. And so what are the clues that I'm going to look for on the EKG IA priori to see if it could fit with any of the items in the differential diagnosis that Tim and Dan outlined for us earlier? So uh, I'm definitely going to later on replay that for myself so I can remember all your pearls there. But I think this is an exercise we should be doing with every additional piece of diagnostic evaluation. Thank you so much. Yeah, this is actually absolutely fantastic. And just reflecting on this case so far, you know, this gentleman absolutely really rapid resuscitation by his friends and colleagues coming in with labs that are just like so almost remarkably unremarkable in that it doesn't have, you know, his lactate is no longer elevated. If it was ever, his LFTs are not skyrocketed high. He has some troponin elevation, probably within the realm of his arrest, but like just really somebody who had a phenomenal resuscitation. And now we're looking at this ECG for clues. So, you know, going back to this particular patient, is there anything on this ECG that helps us out with any of the differential diagnosis that we were discussing earlier? There was a borderline prolonged QTC, but it wasn't particularly prolonged. It definitely wasn't any Q waves to suggest infarct, no epsilon waves. And we didn't see a Brugada pattern. However, we all know that if you don't see a Brugada pattern on the 12-lead ECG, it doesn't rule out Brugada syndrome. There's additional workup that should be done to rule out a Brugada syndrome. So with that in mind, I think we can get into additional testing that we did and looking for structural abnormalities or some of these other arrhythmia syndromes. Stacey, can you go ahead and take us through some of that? Yeah, absolutely. So maybe I'll just take a, a minute to summarize the patient so far as we get into the next steps for his diagnostic study. Um, as we've said, this is a young, previously healthy guy. He had a witnessed out-of-hospital cardiac arrest with the initial rhythm being confirmed to be VF. And so far, this initial workup of his labs and his ECG, as both Chris and Miranda took us through, has been, you know, pretty unrevealing. So our thoughts at this point were, you know, what are the important next steps for workup of his sudden cardiac arrest? The framework that we took was to look for some of these structural causes. And we initially got an echocardiogram. We also wanted to prioritize an ischemic evaluation. And then some additional studies could include a cardiac MRI, percanamide challenge for Brugada syndrome, as Miranda had touched on when we went over the ECG. And then we could also consider doing an EP study as well as an exercise treadmill test. So let's get into some of those testing results. So Stacy, that's a great list of tools that we have in our toolkit to evaluate things further. And one of the things I love about cardiology is we get to take care of some of the most incredible pathology, but in doing so, we can use all of these incredible multi-modality techniques and oftentimes develop a plan where we fix something or do something tangible for the patient. 
If all the things that you listed, how do you prioritize the next steps in the workup? I imagine that we're not going to be ordering everything at the same time. Like, do you have sort of your, your first line testing and then your second line testing and third line testing? So I guess in essence, what's your first line testing at this point? That's a great question. So our starting point was doing an echo. That's because we wanted to look for different structural causes, as we mentioned before. Some of those can include hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, ARVC, um, also just existing cardiomyopathy, whether that's a familial dilated cardiomyopathy or prior hemic cardiomyopathy that could have scar and substrate for arrhythmias. In addition, infiltrative cardiomyopathies like sarcoidosis. Yeah, again, you know, you're modeling for us this hypothesis-driven approach to every level of diagnosis. So what did the window into the heart show? Taking a look at the echo here, the LV function is mildly, globally abnormal. EF is 45 to 50%. The RV is mildly dilated, though has normal function. And there's bilateral leaflet prolapse with trace late peaking MR. So reflecting on those echo findings in kind of the context of the structural causes that we had at the forefront of our mind, you know, I'm not seeing LVH that would suggest HCM. The RV has normal function, and so that makes ARVC lower on my differential. I'm not seeing a severely reduced or even moderately reduced LV ejection fraction to suggest a prior cardiomyopathy. I think it's worth noting that after CPR and resuscitation, it's not uncommon to see a mildly abnormal LV function. So I think that can be accounted for by his resuscitation. And then, you know, kind of thinking about some of those other structural causes that we talked about, you know, I think sarcoid may be lower on our list as well since we're not seeing signs of infiltrative cardiomyopathy. Now, what does give us pause is the bilateral leaflet prolapse. We do know that there can be an association with sudden cardiac arrest with mitral valve prolapse. So I think that that's something that we're going to have to investigate a little further. So, you know, Stacey, you kind of threw me a curveball there. You know, this uh, young, otherwise healthy man who was presumably been asymptomatic, again, has essentially a normal echocardiogram, except for this one finding of mitral valve prolapse. And, you know, I think it'll be interesting to see how we put that together and how we tie that into his presentation. But it's just such a common finding in the general healthy asymptomatic population. How did you tease that apart going forward? What was your next line of testing? So our next steps, we wanted to look for an ischemic etiology. Overall, as we have mentioned before, our suspicion was rather low since this is a young patient. And with that in mind, we opted for a CT coronary given his pretty low pretest probability for obstructive coronary disease. The CT showed normal coronary anatomy and no evidence of coronary artery disease. So that you know, touches on an ischemic etiology as well as rules out anomalous coronary arteries. We also did an EP study, which did not show any inducible VT or VF. And we did a procainamide challenge, which was also relatively normal. I'm actually not that familiar with a procainamide challenge. Was that to, as a sodium channel blocker, was that to look for Brugada? Yes to, yes, to rule out any like inducible Brugada morphology. Yeah, so essentially they place the EKG leads a little bit higher up at the next intercostal space to kind of further 
elicit a brugada pattern on the ECG. And then in addition, they'll fuse procainamide if they don't see anything on that initial uh, repositioning of the EKG leads. We infuse procainamide at an escalating dose to try and elicit a brugada pattern if it's there, a type 1 brugada pattern. Thanks for that explanation because, you know, just for the audience, of course, Brugada syndrome is an inherited sodium channel disorder that can predispose to VT, VF, arrhythmia, sudden cardiac death. As was nicely mentioned earlier, just because you don't have the Brugada pattern and the resting EKG doesn't mean that they don't have an underlying Brugada syndrome. And just because they have the Brugada pattern doesn't mean that they have Brugada syndrome with the increased risk for sudden cardiac death. And so these provocative maneuvers, like I guess you're here using procainamide, which is a sodium channel inhibitor, can bring it on. And then other situations like having a fever and things like that can bring it on also. Uh, so thanks for going over that. Um, so I guess at this point, we have an echocardiogram that shows mitral valve prolapse. We have, thinking back to Tim's delineation of how he approaches this, we have a coronary CTA that shows it's not a coronary ideology and is therefore probably not ischemic mediated event. We don't have any other structural abnormalities on the echo, so it's not like a new myocarditis or HCM or ARVC. We have an EP study that doesn't show us a provocable VT circuit. The procainamide challenge is negative. What's the next step here? At what point do we start thinking about the one red hearing here, the mitral valve prolapse? So once we had our echo results and it showed this interesting finding of mitral valve prolapse and we had otherwise a really negative workup that didn't show cardiomyopathies, that didn't show hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, as folks have mentioned, we, we talked about kind of getting additional imaging. You know, a cardiac MRI is more sensitive for things like scar that could be, you know, precipitating his his ventricular fibrillation. And additionally, we knew that an MRI is going to be able to further elucidate this mitral valve prolapse and see if there's, you know, sometimes your echo windows are not great and getting an MRI can certainly make a prettier picture, especially in a patient that's critically ill, intubated, can't really get into a good position to image them. So our next step was we decided to go ahead and get a cardiac MRI to rule out some of these things, say, to look for sarcoidosis, amyloid, again, some uh, fibrosis associated with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, and then further flesh out this mitral valve prolapse. We do know that mitral valve prolapse can cause arrhythmias and does have an association with arrhythmias, but we felt like in this 25-year-old, we really wanted to be more sure of our diagnosis rather than just chalking it up to mitral valve prolapse. You know, we see mitral valve prolapse not that infrequently. What about mitral valve prolapse in this particular patient would make us more concerned for an arrhythmia? Like, could you teach me more about the link between mitral valve prolapse and arrhythmia and what we would see on MRI? So by getting an MRI uh, to further investigate this for mitral valve prolapse, we're looking particularly to see if there's any evidence of scar or fibrosis in the papillary muscle or in certain segments of the LV myocardium to, that can be from prolapsing leaflet or a hypermobile leaflet that's billowing backwards into the atria and the papillary muscle is developing scar because it's having to accommodate for this stretch injury, essentially. Um, additionally, we're looking to see if there's a significant amount of mitral regurgitation that was possibly missed on the echocardiogram. And then the last thing that I think we're really looking for as well is something called mitral annular dysfunction. And there's a well-described arrhythmic syndrome associated with mitral annular dysfunction. So that's, I think, one of the things that we were also looking for on the cardiac MRI. Team, we know what we're looking for on the cardiac MRI. At this point, I'm assuming we took this patient to the tunnel of truth. What did it show? So taking a look at the cardiac MRI, the MRI shows some interesting findings, including some that Miranda mentioned that we should be looking for. Uh, the LV and RV size are both moderately enlarged. There is biventricular moderately reduced function. 
There is mitral valve prolapse with mitral regurgitation. There is no late gadolinium enhancement and no clear evidence of myocardial fibrosis. And there is an interesting finding of mitral annular dysfunction. Thanks, Stacey. I think that that answers the question that we were really looking for was, was, was there papillary muscle fibrosis? In this case, there wasn't really um, discovered papillary muscle fibrosis. But what we did see was this mitral annular disjunction. And so really what it is, is that you're seeing the mitral annulus kind of displace atrially into the atrium and away from the LV wall. So you can see a, a thin section of myocardium between the top of the LV wall and the mitral annulus. Um, there's a couple other features on MRI and also on echo that you can look for to kind of make this diagnosis that we did actually see in this case. So um, one thing that you're looking for is a hypermobility of the mitral leaflets. The posterior mitral leaflet can have a systolic curling motion to it. Additionally, you can see that there's paradoxical increase in size of the mitral annulus that happens during systole when typically you might expect the mitral annulus to get smaller during systole or maybe you don't even notice a change in size in the mitral annulus. But in mitral annular dysfunction, because it is atrially displacing, you can see it in large and in diameter. As we mentioned on the cardiac MRI, things you can see are the papillary muscle fibrosis from the hypermobility of the mitral leaflets. And additionally, you can see LGE in the infrabasal segment of the left ventricle. A similar thought there in that, that that segment is also getting some stretch injury from the hypermobile leaflets. Wow, guys, this is like a fascinating entity. And again, it's so many other aspects in cardiology, you have a structural abnormality that leads to not necessarily like uh, hemodynamic consequences, but localized stretched and localized shearing and localized damage to the cardiac chambers, like the left ventricle, for example. You know, and so mitral annular disjunction, like what is that? You know, we're always thinking of the right atrium, right ventricle, left atrium and left ventricle. But, you know, sometimes we forget about the annulus, the mitral valve annulus and the tricuspid annulus. And we think about them, uh, especially when it comes to, you know, valvular maladies like regurgitation. But it actually is a real part of the structure of the heart. So just taking the left side, you know, you have this left atrium where the blood collects and, and gathers, and basically it goes through the mitral valve into the left ventricle. And that whole apparatus between the left atrium and the left ventricle is held together by a very, very tough piece of tissue that is the mitral annulus. You know, and that annulus is not permeable to electricity normally. And so that's why, you know, you actually only have you know, your electricity coming through the sinus node, going through the AV node, down the Hisperkinji system. And it's a very like, so it's an electrically neutral tissue. It's also a very tough tissue. It's meant to be a structural tissue. And in mitral annular disjunction, you have a separation. And that basically allows this like tight tissue that's supposed to hold everything in place to be floppy and going back and forth. And we have to imagine like what's going on in the left ventricular system where basically you just have these really high pressure changes, you know, going from a low end diastolic pressure to really high systolic pressures. And when you have a tissue that's supposed to be tight and supposed to be holding everything together, and now you have it shifting back and forth, back and forth every time the heart beats, you could imagine that you're going to develop damage and any kind of damage in the heart generally pretends to arrhythmia. So that's kind of a way that I think about mitral annular disjunction. Guys, do I have that right? And then also, you know, we're not getting cardiac MRIs on every patient. So are there, you know, I, I, it sounds like our echo may not have been slam dunk for it in this particular patient, but are there clues on echo that we could see that would point us to this particular entity in another patient? 
Absolutely, Dan, you have it exactly right. That's a great point because when we went back and looked at that original echo, although it had commented on mitral valve prolapse before, when we knowing what we know from the cardiac MRI being so much more sensitive and describing this process so much more, we were able to look back at the original echo and really see that there was atrial displacement of the mitral annulus. There was mitral annular disjunction evident on the echo, and there was systolic kind of curling of the mitral valve leaflets that is consistent with a diagnosis of MAD or mitral annular disjunction. So you don't need, necessarily need to get a cardiac MRI on everybody if you can appreciate this on echo. I think that's an important teaching point too, is that you know, echo can be imperfect. And sometimes if you're not confident in your echo, or if you're still suspicious of something, when you see something on echo, getting the cardiac MRI can be very helpful. You guys, this is a very exciting time point in how this case is unfolding. Because we started off with a patient who was otherwise healthy, young, vibrant, productive, who essentially died, was thankfully revived. And now we're struggling to figure out why that happened and to try to prevent it later. We've diagnosed mitral valve prolapse, you know, from the clinical approach perspective, it's so challenging, right? Because mitral valve prolapse is such a common structural finding. Many people have it, and it's associated with vague things like palpitations and anxiety and things like this. But very rarely, this common finding can be associated with arrhythmia and sudden cardiac death, uh, as well as mitral regurgitation or heart failure or whatnot. And even though say, mitral valve prolapse itself is very common, the sudden cardiac death is very rare, but even though it's rare, it's catastrophic. And so to be able to identify high-risk features is just so incredibly important. So that way we don't lose people like him. And so on the scale of mitral valve prolapse, what you're describing to us is the high-risk features of mitral valve prolapse that tend to, uh, tend to come with this excess risk of VTVF, sudden cardiac death. You know, like how do these abnormalities form? You've got these redundant leaflets that as the ventricle squeezes, the leaflets collapse, but all the, the redundancy, the excess tissue billows back up into the LA, the left atrium, and the chordae, which are tasked with the duty of holding the tips of the leaflets together so they don't flail back into the left atrium, all of a sudden they're stretched out. And every time they're stretched out, they pull onto the papillary muscles, the papillary muscles pull onto the LV walls, the annulus all of a sudden, very uh, abruptly, it billows up into the left atrium, ripping it apart from the LV mass, LV muscle itself. And so all of the stretch injury from the, the mild mitral valve prolapse, maybe it doesn't have much of a consequence. But with a severe mitral valve prolapse, with every single heartbeat over a course of 25, 26 years, causes stretch injury to the papillary muscles where you can have scar. Thankfully, this patient does not have that. You can have scar in the muscle itself of the LV, like the infrabasal area more classically. But here, this mitral valve prolapse was severe enough to essentially rip the annulus away from the LV muscle and cause this mitral annular disjunction. So of the different varieties and flavors of mitral valve prolapse, this is a pretty severe form and has features that say, hey, look, maybe this isn't just an incidental benign finding for this gentleman. Maybe this is actually what resulted in this patient's sudden cardiac death. We can certainly review all the other high-risk features of mitral valve prolapse, but you know, another question comes up, what do we do about it? You know, we couldn't find scar on the MRI, so there's nothing to ablate. There is no inducible VT on EP study. Does this patient get a mitral valve repair or replacement of or some form? Do we give him an ICD? Do we do both? What did you do for this patient moving forward? Based on our patient's presentation, 
differential, and final diagnosis, a subcutaneous ICD was implanted for secondary prevention. He was discharged with follow-up in our multidisciplinary arrhythmia clinic. He had no recurrent events or ICD therapies on follow-up. That's super interesting, Chris. As we talked about earlier, you know, a prior sudden cardiac arrest is a very strong risk factor for a recurrent arrest. And so it seems like from a secondary prevention, ICD in this case was very strongly indicated. Mitralinear disjunction is a fairly recently recognized entity. And so there hasn't been a lot of strong prospective data to characterize what is the arrhythmic risk in these patients. And when an arrhythmia or a life-threatening arrhythmia occurs, what is the recurrent risk for these folks down the road? We don't have good information as far as implications for family members, implications for sequential or cascade genetic testing. And so we're really just in our kind of infancy of our understanding of mitral annular disjunction and its association with arrhythmias. So I think, you know, this is a good point to summarize, you know, our case today and where we presented a young man uh, who was previously healthy, who suffered of out-of-hospital VF arrest and was found to have this, you know, very rare and interesting diagnosis of mitral annular disjunction. We kind of went through our framework for sudden cardiac arrests, starting with the presenting rhythm, whether that be PEA or in this case, VT or VF. We talked about, you know, in our VF algorithm, initially excluding things like acute ischemia and then considering structural heart problems like a cardiomyopathy or infiltrative process. And also considering in someone with a structurally normal heart, things like a channelopathy or a genetic arrhythmic syndrome. In this case, as we move through our differential, we're able to identify very subtle abnormalities within the mitral valve apparatus. And subsequently performing an MRI, I was able to confirm this diagnosis of mitral annular disjunction that we talked about. I think because it is rare and it can be subtle, you have to have a high index of suspicion really for any abnormality within the mitral valve apparatus, but specifically mitral annular disjunction can be very difficult to diagnose. We talked about the risk of arrhythmic events, both with annular disjunction and with mitral valve prolapse, and the role of ICD in these folks as a secondary prevention measure. Tim and everyone, this was such an incredible reminder of the cost of missing the high-risk features of mitral valve prolapse. It's very costly, right? I, I keep harping on this because it's such a challenging thing in terms of how to approach it. Because look, the vast majority of patients with mitral valve prolapse will never have any problems. The minuscule minority will have the catastrophic problem of sudden cardiac death. And so how do we identify those that have a higher risk of having VT, VF, and sudden cardiac death? And so, you know, I think the, the approach you all took was phenomenal. But I, you know, just kind of stepping back, what if you see a patient, a young patient, maybe an athlete who has mitral valve prolapse and really is completely asymptomatic? You know, it used to be that we say, oh, this is a completely benign finding. Don't worry about it. But we know that mitral valve prolapse can be associated with, again, mitral regurgitation, potentially causing acute flail with acute severe MR as a life-threatening extravagant presentation. You can have a higher risk for endocarditis, even though you know they took it out of the guidelines to give these patients prophylactic antibiotics, um, but you can have a higher risk for endocarditis, uh, SVTs, VTVF, sudden cardiac death. 
So for the risk stratification for these patients, what are the high-risk features? And you know, this beautiful review, Jack 2018 by Miller et al. that says there are three, really for any ventricular arrhythmias, but you know, in terms of how they approached conceptually why you have arrhythmias in these patients, you know, there are three aspects, right? You need a trigger, like uh, automaticity, triggered activity, re-entry. You need a substrate, and here's the scar, again, for that stretch injury and in maybe in the papillary muscle or in the infrabasal wall. And then you need sort of a transient modulator or an inciting event. You know, this guy, he's a, he's a Coast Guard. You know, is he working out? Was he training, having increased adrenergic activity? And that was the inciting event, for instance. But how do they coalesce? How do you restratify? So one is, again, if you have papillary muscle or infrabasal or LV fibrosis. So the CMR is very helpful here. On the MRI itself, you also look for mitral annular disjunction, which is you can see in CMR and you can see an echo. So, so far, two high-risk features are the presence of scar. Number two is the presence of MAD. So don't be MAD. And then on echo, we can look for uh, a few features. Uh, obviously, we define the mitral valve prolapse. We define the MR itself and consequences of the MR and the mechanism of MR. But specific to this, if there's a spiked configuration of the lateral mitral annular velocity above 15 centimeters per second, that pickle hop sign that we look at. And, and actually looking at this patient's tissue Doppler velocities in the light lateral mitral annulus, this patient's peak was uh, 20. So this patient has pickle hop sign as a high-risk feature retrospectively. So we have one scar, two MAD, three, this peaked lateral annular velocity and echo, and then we can look for the electrical signals for high risk. So if you have a lot of ventricular ectopy and especially pleomorphic ventricular ectopy. On EKG, we can look for especially inferior T-wave inversions. And the other high-risk features are if you have bileaflet prolapse, female gender, and significant mitral regurgitation. So just taking a step back, if we see a patient like this in clinic, the high-risk features that should alert us to maybe an increased risk for sudden cardiac death, which is, again, catastrophic that we cannot miss, is female gender, significant mitral regurgitation, bileaflet prolapse, complex ectopy with couplets, triplets, and pleomorphic PVCs, the presence of a peaked lateral mitral annular velocity, mitral annular disjunction, and presence of SCAR or LGE on CMR. But the question becomes, what do you do when you find these features? You know, like it's not entirely clear. We need more data here. We need scientists to look into this more. But do we, you know, is the next step an EP study to improve our risk stratification? Is it to put in an ICD and what should be our threshold for ICDs in these patients? And if you have significant MR and mitral valve prolapse, uh, then is mitral valve replacement sufficient to mitigate the risk without doing an ICD? And, you know, I think there are thoughts and, you know, data that is very limited and retrospective and case-based. You know, we just, we just don't know the answers, but therein lies the complexity. And just going back to our patient, this patient exemplifies the importance of recognizing that it's not always benign and working hard to risk stratify so we don't end up with these catastrophic issues for our patients. Wow, that was a really great approach to mitral valve prolapse and basically risk stratifying. You know, we've talked about hypertrophic cardiomyopathy a lot more on the show. And, you know, when it comes to hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, as we've talked about many times, one of the fundamental cornerstones of treatment is prevention of sudden cardiac death. And obviously, you know, if a patient already had sudden cardiac death, it makes it a little bit easier. In the absence of prior sudden cardiac death, and you want to prevent 
future events, you know, sometimes you do have to look at risk calculators. And we had talked about the European risk calculator for sudden cardiac death. Well, it's very helpful to have a framework similar, obviously not a formalized calculator, but to approach mitral valve prolapse and to think about risk assessment in these patients, especially since the majority of patients with mitral valve prolapse will not go on to have an arrhythmia. And so selection of patients for ICD therapy is going to be very important in this patient population. That being said, we're also talking about mitral valve prolapse in association with mitral annular disjunction that has a worse prognosis and is a higher risk feature for sudden cardiac death. But I understand that there are some patients that have mitral annular disjunction without mitral valve prolapse. Is there a particular risk associated with those patients with regards to sudden cardiac death? Thanks, Dan. That's a great question. So as you guys have mentioned, there certainly is an overlap between mitral annular disjunction with mitral valve prolapse. That being said, ventricular arrhythmias are you know, relatively uh, common in patients with MAD. We've mentioned that there is not a lot of great data on these patients. However, there is a helpful reference for CardioNerds listeners, which is a study by Degard et al. and Jack in 2018. And this was a study where the authors looked at over 100 patients with MAD, and they found that 12% of patients had severe arrhythmic events like our patient. And that was defined in the study as sudden cardiac arrest or sustained VT. And as we talked about with, you know, what were predictors or factors that are associated with sudden cardiac death in patients with mitral valve prolapse, this study also identified some predictors of severe rhythmic events in patients with MAD. Those were younger age, lower ejection fraction, and papillary muscle fibrosis. That gets to the point that we brought up earlier about kind of scar tissue formation and, you know, I would say the kind of the mechanical substrate for arrhythmias in MAD where you're having a lot of mitral annular kind of abnormal motion. Interestingly, mitral valve prolapse was not associated with ventricular arrhythmias. And so that really suggests and highlights a point that the arrhythmic risk in MAD is independent of the presence of mitral valve prolapse. Wow, that's fascinating. You know, I've always learned about mitral annular disjunction within the context of mitral valve prolapse. And in that context, is also just intuitive for me how that develops in mitral valve prolapse with the billowing and stretching forces. But it's fascinating to think about MAD developing independently, almost as a primary ideology. And so it's just, you know, highlighting one of the things, one of the many things there are to love about cardiology is that there's so much we don't know still, you know, and we've got some of the biggest trials and data sets and advanced imaging, but we're still learning as a community and, and most importantly, applying it to our patients like this one. So just want to thank each of you, Stacy, Miranda, Chris, Tim, for bringing us such an incredible case. Thankfully, our patient did well, and his story will go on to teach us how to approach similar patients in the future hopefully to avert sudden cardiac death before it happens and be in a place of primary prevention, not secondary prevention. And again, this reminds us of why we love cardiology, but we'd love to hear from you guys. What do you enjoy about cardiology and what makes your hearts flutter about training at OHSU? Um, the thing that makes my heart flutter about cardiology is that it's such a broad field, even though you're specializing in a single organ, you know, there are cardiologists who are focused in predominantly outpatient setting, doing prevention work, and the uh, spectrum goes all the way to the other end where there's pure critical care cardiology. And you can find yourself, you know, anywhere in that spectrum and move about throughout your career. And so there's a lot of opportunity 
for growth, even within just a single field. And then we get to use so many unique tools within cardiology. You know, we've talked about this before, and it's a popular topic, but, you know, we get to spend time in imaging and hemodynamics and focusing on the electrical system of the, the heart with the electrophysiology studies and interventions, that it's just such a broad, fantastic field. And we're really able to, to help care for a lot of people and do good for a lot of people. And I find that to be very fulfilling. And I think that when you talk about OHSU, I think that living in Portland, the quality of life here is fantastic. And I think second to none anywhere else in the country. It's a, it's a great place to train. It has a very clinically rigorous curriculum and we get a lot of didactic teaching. But I think that when you're outside the hospital, your quality of life here is just through the roof. And I think that's one of the best things about training in Oregon. At OHSU, I feel like we're also so lucky that we have such amazing, accomplished, fun faculty. And I really find that we have strengths kind of across the board in all of the different subspecialties of cardiology. Um, you know, looking at this case as an example, we have awesome multimodality imaging with attendings like Ahmed Masri and Craig Broberg, who primarily read cardiac MRIs. We have a wonderful EP division and have a pretty unique multidisciplinary ventricular arrhythmia clinic, which is the clinic that this patient's following up in. So I think that we get this broad exposure, not only only from great faculty in the different subspecialties, but also being a fact that we're in Oregon, we're the only academic medical center here. So we get patients from all over the state, as well as kind of nearby Washington, which really affords us, I'd say, an interesting patient population. And it's um, been so great to train here and to live here. We're very lucky. This is Miranda. You know, I went into cardiology because similar to Stacy and Tim who have spoken so far, I was really intrigued by the options within cardiology. I thought, you know, you can read EKGs, you can look at echocardiograms, you could be doing, you know, cath. And I didn't even know EP was actually really a field probably when I first went into medicine. But now here I am, I've fallen in love with EP and that's what I want to do with my future. So there's so many different avenues you can take within the field. It's got so many advances all the time that I just really fell in love with it when I was an internal medicine resident. As far as why this program, what I love about OHSU and what I realized when I interviewed here is just the people here are, are really incredible. And in addition to getting great clinical training, I, you know, on my interview day, I met people that I got along with so well and the, both the fellows and the, the faculty that we work with here. And, and it's proved to be true. The mentorship that we have here is so wonderful. My attendings teach me so much and they're also have become my friends too. And I, I feel like they're going to be mentors that I have for the rest of my life. People that I've gotten to know and can reach out to have their phone numbers and hopefully have them in my life as a cardiologist as I move forward in my career. Some of the things that make my heart flutter about cardiology is that the entire specialty is built upon hemodynamics and physiology, but at the same time, we rely on cutting-edge multimodality imaging or invasive novel procedural techniques, and it's a very complex interplay between all these different subspecialties within cardiology, but also within each other as colleagues. And any day at OHSU, there's lots of discussion between all the different subspecialists in regards to the care of patients. And I think that is what draws me towards cardiology and why I look forward to coming to the hospital every single day. 
Stacy, Miranda, Chris, Tim, this was an absolute, absolute pleasure. I, as Ahmed said earlier, gondola is amazing, but I'm so glad we ended up sticking on the ground for this one because the drinks that you guys bring would have made me, <laughs> would have been a little bit too much for me on the gondola. But this discussion was incredibly educational and every different aspect and cornerstone that we looked at a young patient presenting with a cardiac arrest and went through a very broad differential diagnosis and systematically kind of ticked off all of the items that we'd be thinking of and arrive at the conclusion of mitral valve prolapse with associated mitral annular disjunction to make a unifying diagnosis for this patient's presentation was just incredible. And we're so glad that he had a good outcome and we're so glad that he was in your hands. So with that, thank you so much for joining us on the show. We just had an absolute blast. Thanks, guys. Thanks, you guys. Thank you so much. And now for the ECPR from our very own Dr. Punag Devanji, who is an assistant professor in cardiology here at OHSU and one of our wonderful interventional attendings. Thank you, folks, for joining us. Our outstanding OHSU fellows just presented an interesting case of sudden cardiac death in the presence of mitral annular disjunction. Before we can understand this anatomic variant and its potential clinical impact, it is important to understand the normal mitral annular anatomy and function. The mitral annulus is a central component of the fibrous skeleton of the heart. It originates at the fibrous trigones, which sit at the junction between the mitral and aortic valves. From there, it extends as an ellipse attached posteriorly to the left atrium and anteriorly to the left ventricle. The valve leaflets are implanted on this ellipse to form the functional mitral valve, which, as you know, prevents blood flow from the LV back to the LO. The annulus itself serves three important roles. In addition to anchoring mitral leaflets to the atrioventricular junction, it electrically separates the left atrium and left ventricle and anchors the left atrium to the ventricular myocardium. Throughout the cardiac cycle, the normal mitral annulus is inserted firmly into the ventricular myocardium ensuring that the myocardial contraction affects both the function of the mitral valve and atrial shape. In fact, the normal mitral annulus inserts roots into the basal ventricular myocardium. This strengthens the annular interdependence with left ventricular contraction. During systole, contraction and movement of the basal ventricular myocardium pulls on the fibrous mitral annulus, causing an accentuated saddle shape and bringing the mitral leaflets together to prevent early systolic mitral regurgitation. Now, with the normal structure and function of the mitral annulus in mind, we can better understand mitral annular disjunction, henceforth referred to interchangeably as MAD. MAD is a structural abnormality in which there is a distinct separation of the mitral valve annulus from the basal portion of the posterolateral ventricular myocardium. It is characterized by detachment of the roots that I just mentioned of the annulus from the ventricular myocardium to which it would normally be attached. This abnormality is localized and tends to impact the LV myocardium just below the P1 and P2 scallops of the posterior mitral valve leaflet. Because the fibrous trigones are densely fibrotic, the base of the anterior leaflet is unaffected. Additionally, there's typically no detachment of the annulus from the mitral valve leaflets or from the atrial wall. Systole, as the posterolateral ventricular myocardium contracts, the annulus slides and becomes detached from the myocardium. This gap can be of a variable distance from a few millimeters and sometimes to even more than one centimeter. And understanding 
how wide that gap is is of potential clinical importance. It cannot be made in diastole because the ventricular myocardium is appropriately situated under the annulus at that time. Thus, the apparent presence of MAD is dynamic throughout the cardiac cycle. And this systolic defect can be difficult to diagnose unless images are carefully reviewed in frame-by-frame analysis. Annular disjunction was initially described almost 40 years ago by Barthi et al. to refer to an anatomic variation of the fibrous mitral annulus while describing a patient with a long history of palpitations and mid-systolic click due to mitral valve prolapse. This patient died from sudden cardiac death. It was then more systematically described in the 1980s in an autopsy study of 900 patients in which 23 of 25 patients with mitral valve prolapse had a stretched and curtain-like posterior annulus. Authors noted that mitral annular disjunction could play a role in the pathogenesis of myxomatous valve generation by means of increased mechanical stress from excess mobility of the mitral valve apparatus. Initially, it was thought to be an anatomic variant without clinical significance, but studies from the early 2000s suggested a potential link to ventricular arrhythmias and sudden cardiac death. However, uh, and this is critical, our understanding of mitral annular disjunction is still nascent, and we have much more to learn. MAD is also described as an unusual systolic curling of the posterior mitral annulus on the adjacent myocardium, such that systolic movement of the annulus is primarily downward with little, if any, anterior motion. The exact mechanism for the development of MAD is uncertain. Morphologic and functional data suggest that in patients with arrhythmic mitral valve prolapse, the mitral valve apparatus is characterized by mitral annular disjunction, systolic curling, and myxomatous leaflet thickening. In patients with MAD and myxomatous mitral valve degeneration, there appears to be an association with LV fibrosis and electric instability. Mechanistically, it is hypothesized that MAD leads to systolic curling and hypermobility, causing an increase in annulus diameter and traction on the infrabasal LV segment and papillary muscles during systole. This can increase wall stress and allow for subsequent hypertrophy and fibrosis. This then may lead to a predilection for electrical instability and ventricular arrhythmias with myocardial fibrosis serving as the substrate and mechanical stress as the trigger. Additionally, there is evidence to suggest that a longer gap in mitral annular disjunction may impose a higher risk of LV fibrosis and electrical instability. MAD can be seen on multiple non-invasive imaging modalities, including transthoracic echo, transesophageal echo, and cardiac magnetic resonance imaging. In addition to the presence of MAD, imaging also identifies its location and the extent of the gap between the annulus and the basal ventricular wall. Furthermore, when reviewing imaging studies, we should also look for the severity of associated myxomatous mitral valve disease, mitral valve prolapse, and mitral regurgitation if present. On transthoracic echo, it is most commonly seen in the parasternal long axis view, and to a lesser extent from the apical two and four chamber views. The equivalent image projections on cardiac magnetic resonance imaging are also able to detect the presence, extent, and location of MAD in the systolic phase. Cardiac MRI has the additional benefit of assessing for myocardial and papillary muscle fibrosis with late gadolinium enhancement, which can also be present. In summary, mitral annular disjunction is a structural abnormality of the heart in which there is an absence of myocardium during systole between the posterior mitral valve annulus and adjacent basal segments of the ventricular wall. It is associated with myxomatous mitral valve disease and mitral valve prolapse and is seen during systole on echocardiography and MRI. There is growing literature to suggest its association with ventricular arrhythmias and sudden cardiac death, 
but much still remains unknown. Thus, we need more insight into its potential effect on patient management and treatment options, and further studies are clearly required. And now a word from our wonderful program director, Hind Ramuni, who's an assistant professor of cardiology here at OHSU. She's one of our imaging faculty, and she's incredibly invested in our education and our well-being as fellows in her program. Hi, I'm Hendra Mooney, and I'm the Program Director for the Cardiovascular Disease Fellowship here at OHSU. Thank you so much, Cardio Nerds, for letting me come and say a few words about our program. What a fascinating case! Thankfully, this patient did well. I want to commend our fellows Miranda, Stacy, Chris, and Tim for presenting such an amazing case. I'm so proud of you guys. I really think this case demonstrates some key features of our fellowship. So, this Young patient was transferred to OHSU from Coos Bay, which is about four hours south of Portland. This is not unusual for us. OHSU is the only academic center in the entire state of Oregon. So we often refer the sickest and most complex patient, not only from Oregon, but also from southern Washington, northern California, and Idaho. This allows for unique learning opportunities for our fellows. Fellows also have the opportunity to provide cardiovascular care to our veterans at the Portland VA Medical Center. Fellowship rotations are split between OHSU and the Portland VA. The two hospitals are actually connected by a 660-foot sky bridge, a physical structure that effectively symbolizes the integration of academia, research, and clinical work across both settings. Fellows alternate continuity clinic at the VA and at OHSU with the opportunity to select a subspecialty clinic in their third year. So some of the most popular subspecialty clinic with fellows are the hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and amyloid clinic, the valve clinic, ACHD clinic, the pregnancy clinic, the cardio-oncology clinic, and the ventricular arrhythmia clinic, just to name a few. Talking about subspecialties, we have seven advanced subspecialty training. ACHD, Advanced Imaging, Electrophysiology, Interventional Cardiology, Structural Fellowship, Advanced Heart Failure, and Amyloid HCM Fellowship. To complement the clinical training, we have a comprehensive and very robust conference and didactic series, including EP Conference, Interventional, Imaging Conference, MNM, Journal Club, Research Conference, and a multidisciplinary conference where fellows rotate weekly and present interesting cases, just, just like the one we discussed today. We also have a very unique conference series called the Integrative Physiology Conference, where fellows review landmark papers and trials that serve as the underpinnings for the cardiology that we practice today. This is really one of the things that are thematically special about this place. We spend a tremendous amount of time making sure that physiology is at the forefront. Fellows learn not just from evidence-based medicine, but really from having a tremendous amount of depth in pathophysiology, physiology, and technology. This really gives them a solid foundation for being able to grow their knowledge. There are also broad opportunities for basic, translational, and clinical research for the fellows. Some of our fellows decide to spend two years training to be physician scientists under the auspices of the T32 grant. But even our fellows who are interested in careers such as clinician educators or want to join a private practice, they have been very successful in their research. 
our fellow presented at all national conferences. They have many publications and many won Young Investigator Awards at national and international venues. Finally, I often get this question from applicants. What is OHSU's strongest asset? And I have no hesitation answering this question. People. People are our strongest asset. We, and when I say we, I include faculties and fellows, we're really a family. It's a collaborative and friendly environment. We don't consider fellows as just as trainees. They're our future colleagues. Yes, our immediate goal during the three years of fellowship is to give them the strongest foundation in cardiology. But our long-term goal is to build a lifelong mentor-mentee relationship and, frankly, friendship. So if you have any question about OHSU Cardiovascular Fellowship Program, do not hesitate to contact us directly. You can find our contact information on our website, where you can also find the profile of all our fellows. They actually give very valuable advice to the applicant, so check it out. And if you want to continue to follow Stacy, Miranda, Chris, and Tim, and all our fellows during their fellowship journey, or just know their favorite food card in Portland, well, they're on Twitter at OHSU Card Follow. Um, they also post some amazing pictures of Portland on that account. And I think my favorite is, is the one that Miranda just posted on her um, last night on call. Thank you again to Cardio Nerds for inviting us. I think this podcast is an amazing educational tool that really empowers learners to teach. Thank you. Wow, what an amazing case. A huge thanks to the fellows and faculty for enriching us with yet another terrific discussion and incredible addition to the Cardio Nerds case report series. Be sure to check out the show notes for all the case media available for review, key take-home and discussion points, and links to the program. If you'd like the educational takeaways and graphics delivered directly to your email, sign up for The Heartbeat, the Cardio Nerds newsletter. You can join the email list using a link in the episode description, as well as from our website, www.cardionerds.com. We thank the ACC Fit section chaired by Dr. Noshin Riza for their support and collaboration. And a very special thanks to our incredible production team for elevating our platform. Colin Blumenthal, Tommy Doss, Eunice Dugan, Rick Ferraro, Evelyn Song, and Bibin Burgis are all internal medicine residents at the Johns Hopkins Hospital, as well as their phenomenal med-ed mentor and University of Maryland cardiology fellow, Karan Desai. If you love the show as much as we do, be sure to spread the word, rate, and review us on your favorite podcast platform, and consider becoming a patron of the show on Patreon. All right, that's a wrap. Time to make like an S2 and split. And I just have to say that the moral of this story was whatever you do, don't get mad. All right, I'm sorry. I know that was terrible. <laughs> or if you have it. <laughs> Wait a minute. Wait a minute. <laughs> or if you have it, get an MRI. Get an MRI. <laughs> On to the food trucks. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> arrest him. Arrest him. No, we don't want any cardiac arrests. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh my God. <laughs> Stop the recording. <laughs>